Y'all, let's go ahead, turn to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. Uh, this is, we are in our series on rediscovering God through the Old Testament, and we're, it's morphed into what I think I'm going to continue to do till I leave for my summer break, the call of specific Old Testament uh, spiritual giants. So we've, we've looked at the call of Moses when God went after Moses. We've looked at God going after Isaiah. Last week we looked at God going after Jacob. We're looking at the first encounter that these great men have had with God, when God pursued them, when God made himself known to them. And we're rediscovering God in the midst of that. Uh, today we're going to look at Joshua. I think next week we're going to look at David. And the week after that, probably Jeremiah, and then I don't know after that. But we're going to keep going in that kind of pattern. Um, now, this past week, I read a letter in an article that was remembering Memorial Day. And it's actually a pretty famous letter. It was marking, the article was trying to remember those who had given the infinite cost of their life uh, for their country and the cost that was to their families. Uh, you might have heard of this letter. It's from Major Sullivan Ballou, who's from North Smithfield, Rhode Island. He wrote it to his wife a week before he died at the Battle of Bull Run in the Civil War. Here's how it goes. He says, uh, Dear Sarah, the indications are very strong that we shall move in a few days, perhaps tomorrow. And lest I should not be able to write you again, I feel impelled to write a few lines that may fall under your eye when I am no more. Sarah, my love for you is deathless. It seems to bind me with mighty cables that nothing but omnipotence can break. And yet my love of country comes over me like a strong wind and bears me irresistibly with all those chains to the battlefield. The memory of all those blissful moments I have enjoyed with you come crowding over me. And I feel most deeply grateful to God and you that I have enjoyed them for so long. And how hard it is for me to give them up and burn to ashes the hopes and future years when, God willing, we might still have lived in love together and seen our boys grow up to honorable manhood around us. If I do not return, my dear Sarah, never forget how much I loved you, nor that when my last breath escapes me on the battlefield, it will whisper your name. And then he goes on to apologize for all his faults and to forgive him for his sins and for his uh, indifference and his foolishness and and then he ends with these words. He says, Sarah, do not mourn me dead. I mean, remember, this guy's still alive at this point. Do not mourn me dead. Think I am gone and wait for me, for we shall meet again. Now, I think we would all say that this is a very moving letter. I think we would all say this is a very moving love story. And you know what I love about it as a love story? It's a marriage love story. I mean, I think the only love stories we get today are those that are outside of marriage. This is a marriage love story. And also, I think we would all say this is a man who was strong and courageous. Here's the point. None of us in this room set out to be weak and cowardice. None of us. But we tend to run away from hardship. No one sets out to be weak and cowardly, but lying keeps us from looking bad in other people's eyes. 
No one sets out to be weak and cowardly. But we refuse to face the indifference and the selfishness and the harmful patterns in our lives and in our relationships and in our marriages and in our families. No one sets out to be weak and cowardly, but we talk about the person instead of talking to the person. No one sets out to be weak and cowardly, but we give in to temptation instead of fight it and resist it. No one sets out to be weak and cowardly. But we'll watch people and relationships and reputations deteriorate right before our eyes and don't lift a hand to stop it. No one sets out to be weak and cowardly. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. Joshua 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but shall you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Lord, none of us set out to be weak and cowardly, but we confess that we are. And we, at some level, desire to not be so. So, O oh Lord, I pray that you would show us what it is and then make it real how to be strong and courageous. And I pray you would do that even now as we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Joshua and Israel were struggling with weakness and cowardice. 
Why were they struggling with weakness and cowardice? Why? Well, maybe, maybe it was because the land they're supposed to call home was filled with massive, aggressive, well-trained, deadly armies. That could be part of it. It also could be that they were very self-aware people. In other words, they took accurate, self-aware reflections of themselves. They looked at themselves individually and corporately. They knew their strengths and their weaknesses. They knew their limitations, and they knew what they were capable of and what they weren't capable of. And so in this real, rigorous, realistic self-awareness, it makes them weak and cowardly. Uh, maybe, though, is because this is the youth of Israel that's going into the promised land. This is the less experienced and the less mature and the less influential and the less powerful. This is the less accomplished and the less polished Israelites. These are the children, the second generation of the parents, the first generation that were brought to this exact same point but blew it before God. And so God took them on a 40-year spiritual boot camp journey into the wilderness. And so this is the youth of Israel that are about ready to go into the promised land. So maybe it's because of that that they're weak. Well, the answer, though, though, is found in verse 1. Look at verse 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. This young generation of Israelites was struggling with being weak and cowardly because Moses is dead. Now, you would never know if this verse didn't tell you Moses was dead, that he was dead. Because there are sightings of Moses all over chapter 1. In fact, I have this habit when I do my sermon prep every week, when I... Tuesday, when I go into the study and I begin to look at a passage that's going to be preached on the following Sunday, the first thing, I have what's called a first reading. And on the first reading, I am intentionally seeking to read in search of God. So when I'm reading, I'm reading it as if I'm seeing what's striking me, what's hitting me, what's impacting me, what's surprising me. What's exposing me? What, what questions does this text arise? Because the reason is this. The reason is, and it comes from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book on preachers and preaching. He says, preachers, are you going to be a witness when you preach? Are you going to be a lawyer when you preach? You see, a witness is someone that actually sees the truths in the text. A witness is someone in which the truths actually pass through the preacher or the person to the hearer. The lawyer, he's arguing a case for God. It's a cold case. It could be tight and logical and concise and full of a lot of information, but the truth isn't coming through you. The truth is just passing by you to the hearer. Which one do you want to be, he says. So this first reading, and here's what I jotted down on my notepad. My notepad's my computer. Does anybody use a notepad anymore? Like actual pen and that's all. I don't know. Oh, gee. Ray? Ray's old school, man. I love Ray. All right. On my notepad, this is the first thing I wrote down. Moses, Moses, Moses. Moses is everywhere, but he's dead. 
Moses' name is mentioned 11 times in chapter 1, and he's dead. When Joshua's mentioned, can you imagine you're Joshua? When you're mentioned, you know what you're called? Moses' assistant. Now, you're the dude that's going into the promised land. You're the guy that's got to face the, the armies. And you're called Moses' assistant. This is highly inspiring stuff to a young guy that's about ready to take over the reins and lead an army, outnumbered, far superior armies. Your training is your guys can barely pull back a bow to shoot a deer. And you're called Moses' assistant. Deuteronomy 34, 10 through 12. These are the three verses right before verse 1 of Joshua 1. These are the three verses right before Moses' incomparableness is clearly laid out here. Listen to what it says. And there has, not ar- there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. How many prophets did they have in Israel? Elijah was a big one. Elisha. Even David was like a prophet. There's not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. There was no one like Moses. Not then, not later in history, no one as great as Moses and he's dead. Old Testament scholar Dale Ralph Davis asks, what do, you, what do you have left when everything the first five books of the Bible have, pre- have been preparing you for, entering the promised land, following your great leader, ends with his funeral? What do you do when the first five books of the Bible have been leading you, preparing you, bringing you to this point, and your leader dies? You know what Israel had left? Weakness, fear, cowardice. Now, when a father goes down, swept up in some ugly sin, his children are shaken. When the star player goes down in the championship game, his teammates are shaken. When people don't look up to us, think highly of us, we're shaken. When we can't look in the mirror and see the kind of person that gets the promotion, that gets the tenure, that gets the contract, that gets the boy, that gets the personal recognition, we're shaken. Uh, Many of Redeemer's um, elders and deacons meet every other week for lunch at the Elite Cafe on Fridays. And the purpose of this is to build our friendship, our love for one another, our unity, our partnership in the gospel. It's It's also designed to help further all of us to grow and wrestle with building our lives around Jesus, right? 
Well, one of the guys on Friday shared that a friend of his, a recent friend of his, had just committed suicide. Uh, The reason? He was accused by some of the workers in his university of stealing. He did not steal the things he was accused of. He didn't steal at all. He didn't do it. But he couldn't get over the fact that people thought he did. The blow was too deep to his honor, too deep to his identity, too deep to his sense of self. In other words, his moral goodness in his eyes and in the eyes of others was his Moses. It was his form of confidence, his form of trust, his form of strength. And when it died, he was shaken. Verse 2, let's look at verse 2 together. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, pack it in and turn it back. All is lost. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise. 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 Go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm going to give to them, to the people of Israel. Arise, go, enter the land. Here's the point. When your Moses dies, when your form of confidence and trust and strength dies, God calls you to be strong and courageous. God calls you to arise, get up, and go. God calls you, don't stay there. Enter the promised land. So the point of this passage is this. Here's the point. When your Moses dies, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous is mentioned three times in this passage. It's the dominating command in this passage. Three times, be strong and courageous. Four times, it's implied in the command to arise and go into the land. It's implying to be strong and courageous. So for Joshua and for Israel at this point, when God's point is when, when your Moses dies, be strong and courageous, this meant two things. It meant two things for them. We'll see how it applies to us. But the two things for them it meant was enter the promised land. In fact, the book of Joshua is divided into three major sections. You've got sections uh, 1 through 12, 13 through 21, and 22 through 24. After each of those sections, here's the summary refrain. The Lord gave the land and Israel took it. That's the point. When your Moses dies, enter the land. The second thing it means for them was build your life around God's word, verses 7 through 8, right? Now, their word was the first five books of the Bible that we have. That's all they had. And that, those first five books were called the law. So don't get hung up just on Ten Commandments when you hear the law here. It's build your life, meditate, soak, and saturate yourself in everything that these first five books talk about. Now, there is not an earthly promised land 
for us to enter into in our earthly lives right now. There is no Christian territory, no Christian state, no Christian ghetto, no Christian culture that we're to fight for. No crusades. There shouldn't have been a crusades. But there are promises that we're meant to trust, believe, and enter into when we're shaken. Like verse 9, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. When you're wrongly accused of stealing, be strong and courageous by entering into God's promises. I'll be with you wherever you go. Don't be dismayed. Don't be frightened. Now, when our Moses dies, and you all know what your Moses is, when, you're, when you take a blow to your form of confidence, whatever it could be, it could be lots of things. It could be the things we've talked about. It could be things that are deeper, like influence and, and having people look up to you, but it manifests itself in terms of having a status or a position or getting a promotion or a certain salary, whatever it is. Whatever you, when you take a blow, when we take a blow to our Moses, our form of competence, our form of trust and strength, we're called to enter into the promises not a promised land, the promises with strength and courage. Like verse 5, I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. What God is saying is, look, I'm your trust. I'm your confidence and I'm your strength. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. All other trusts and confidence will die. They'll leave you, they'll forsake you. I will not. That's what God is saying to the Israelites and to Joshua at this point. Second implication for us is this, is that we have more than five books of the Bible to build our lives around. Don't we? We've got a huge book of the scriptures to build our lives around. So when your Moses dies, the implication for us is to be strong and courageous by saturating ourselves with all of the scriptures. I want you to think of your soul like a sponge and I want you to think of the scriptures like water, living water. Soak it up. Dip your soul into the waters of the scriptures. Now, Read verse 8. Let's look at verse 8 here. This book of the law shall not depart. Now remember, that's the first five books. Shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Soak up God's word when you're shaken. Read it, read it, read it. But read it in search of God. It's when you're shaken that you actually can begin to identify with a lot of the Psalms. You actually can begin to say, my heart thirsts for you. Earnestly I seek you, right? So read it, read it, read it. But also in soaking it up, you're reading it in search of God. You're also listening. You're listening as if God actually speaks to you in it. That it actually is his word. And he's speaking to you right now. 
I think many times we approach the text with already an invisible barrier and we don't even know it just in the way we approach the text. When we come to the Bible, we're not reading it in search of God. We're reading it in search of a bunch of other things. The solution to our problem. A way to get what we want. But when we read it in search of God, things are different. And when we read it to listen as if God is speaking to us, it's a different approach. So soak, and also put yourself under good teaching. I mean, we've got uh, we've got CE on Sunday mornings, midweek on Wednesdays. These help you soak up God's word. And the other thing too is, I think we forget this. You you soak up the scriptures not in isolation or alone, but you soak up the scriptures in a community with others. In other words. If all you're soaking up is your reading of the scriptures alone and studying of the scriptures alone, you're going to have huge gaps in knowing God and knowing yourself. Massive blind spots. But when we, when we pursue God together, you get a fuller, filled out, because that's the way God's designed us to know him in a community, God, Okay? If this happens, you know, Luther, he, he, you just remember these words when you, you're tempted to only be alone with reading the scriptures and not with God's people. Just think of these words. Think of Luther writing to you or pointing his finger at you, all right, because he would do that. He, he'd pump you right in the chest. This is what he did to Erasmus. He said, Erasmus, it's just so strange that your God looks just like you. If we're alone and we don't do this, if our quiet time is it, if our time alone in the scriptures and praying is it, our God will look like us. Okay? We need each other for God to be God. All right. Some of you might be thinking, I have way too many doubts in the Bible to trust the Bible like this. That's fair. That's very fair. Here's what I want to say to you, though. You are trusting something about the Bible, though. So it's not that, even though you've got lots of doubts, it's not that you're not trusting something about the Bible. What you're trusting is, is your doubts about the Bible, not the Bible. So I just want to push you a little bit. What if your faith in the doubts of the Bible is not trustworthy? What if it's a fragile faith? And what if the Bible actually has more trustworthiness for your trust and your faith than your doubts in the Bible? Now look, if, if the Bible ends up being untrustworthy and your doubts are correct, no big deal. Really, no big deal. What did you gain or what did you lose? Well, you lost a, you know, a few hours of reading. A few hours of inquiring, a few hours of asking questions about the scriptures. Maybe a, a few psychological, spiritual tension, like, is this true? Okay, but then when you figure out the Bible isn't true, it all goes away. But what if, on the other hand, though, that your doubts in the Bible is untrustworthy? And the Bible is trustworthy. Knowing God's at stake. 
Your salvation's at stake. All right, so here's a better way. I hope you take this way if this is you. Talk to someone who trusts the Bible about your doubts. Talk to them. Ask questions. See if your doubts actually are pretty easy to explain. And then maybe your doubts are very, very difficult. Fine, but talk to somebody about them. And if you've already done that and it didn't help, fire the person you're talking to right now. Find somebody else who knows what they're talking about. Okay? All right. Now, the tension for the Christian in this passage is in verse 9. Look at verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Here's the tension. God's commanding us to be strong and courageous. And if we're honest, most of us many times have thought this. I'm trying, but it's not taken. I'm trying to be strong and courageous. It ain't taken with me. I mean, I'm doing everything I know to do. I'm reading in the Bible. I'm praying. I'm, I'm serving others. I'm going to the church, and it's just not taken in my life. I'm still shaken. I'm still weak and cowardly. I still can't get outside of myself. I still can't confess sins to people when I offend them. I still can't walk into my marriage and have an honest conversation about what's going on in our marriage to my spouse. I still can't do it. I can't screw up the courage to go talk to that person or that boss that's offensive and has offended me and others. I still don't have the courage when someone even right besides me asks me if I go to church and I'm a Christian. I get all sweaty and my palms get cold and clammy and yes right here's the problem the problem is not with our praying and it's not with our serving others and it's not with our reading the bible and it's not with our studying the bible and not with all the good things we do our problem is our lack of faith Our problem is we don't believe he really is with us. That's our problem. So, we don't believe what the rest of verse 9 says. We get the first part, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. This is the part we really don't believe. Do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Brothers and sisters, this is good news, not good advice. Our problems, we've forgotten that Christianity is good news, not good advice. What do I mean? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was called the last great preacher. He preached in London. He died in 1981. So he was the last great Puritan preacher by many, right? But he died in 1981. So that's a fairly recent time to have a Puritan in the pulpit. Uh, He said it this way. Advice is counsel about something that hasn't happened yet. But you can do something about it. News is a report about something that has happened which you can't do anything about because it's been done for you and all you can do is respond to it. And then he goes on to say, look, there's a king and the king goes into battle to stop an invading army from destroying his people. 
If the king wins, he sends messengers back to the capital city. And these messengers come back with good news. And the good news is, we won! (laughs) The battle's over! The enemy's defeated! It's done. And the city responds with joy. The city responds with strength and courage. But if the king's army loses, he sends military advisors back to the capital city. And these military advisors advise the city for its last stand. Fight for your lives. The enemy is coming. Marksmen there, horsemen over there. And the city responds with fear. And fear-based, fear-driven, ferocious activity. Many of us live our lives like the king sent military advisors to us. You're fighting for your life. You're driven by fear. You're driven by fear-based activity, laws, rules, lists, expectations, standards, to-dos, views, opinions, rituals. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, this is the way of religion, of fighting to achieve salvation. We need to live our lives like the king sent messengers to us with good news. We won. The enemy's defeated. The battle is over. It's done. And then you'll really believe that God is with you wherever you go. And you will be strong and courageous. Now, Genesis ends by recording that the great Savior of the world, at that time, Egypt and Jacob's family, dies. His name is Joseph. Deuteronomy ends with the great Savior of Israel from the bondage of Egyptian captivity dies. Joshua will end at the end of the book with the great Savior of Israel in the promised land dying. We need a better Savior. We need a Savior whose end is not death. On the first day of the week, at the early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking spices they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but they went in and they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed by this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. This was a message from a messenger named Luke. The king, you know what's fascinating? Joshua, when translated into Hebrew, means Yeshua. You know what that means? Jesus. Jesus is the king, and he has gone and defeated all enemies. Every last one of them obliterated them. It wasn't even close. He obliterated all enemies. The greatest being a cosmic condemnation of eternal justice, of of spiritual, physical, and eternal death that hangs over humanity like the Grim Reaper. She slays that one. Goes after sin. She slays that one. He doesn't even look at Satan. He just says, get out of my face. He's gone. He's kicked out of heaven. He's a little terrorist down here now, but his days are numbered. Every struggle you have right now has been defeated. Every weakness you have right now has been defeated. Every cowardly reality in you right now has been defeated. It's done. How do you respond to that? You believe it with joy. What? Is this true? And you become strong and you become courageous because it's done. Amen.